Good morning, happy Thursday, January 21st, and welcome to Every Day's a Holiday, a daily podcast calendar giving you a reason to celebrate every day of the year. Today's holiday is Squirrel Appreciation Day, and I apologize for any extra noise in the background. It is very windy tonight in California as I'm recording. Anyway, back to Squirrel Appreciation Day. Most of the world seems to see squirrels as nothing but pests, but squirrels are actually super cool. Squirrels serve an important role within their respective ecosystems. Robert McCleary, an associate professor in the Department of Wildlife Ecology and Conservation at the University of Florida, says that squirrels' biggest contribution to the forest is in shaping plant composition. They have a peculiar habit of taking seeds, which are their main source of nutrients, and burying them. They bury them throughout the environment, and often, when they go back to look for them, they forget where they were. When that happens, they are effectively planting seeds. So over time, this behavior, known as caching, can expand forests and change the type of trees that grow there, effectively producing a more biodiverse environment. And then, on a sillier note, squirrels also make for some solid entertainment. Squirrel behavior can be very erratic or very clever. Some squirrels will tell you to back off if you come too close to their cache of nuts, and others will do literally anything to get some free food from innocent park goers. And if you haven't witnessed squirrels breaking into bird feeders, you do not know what you're missing. If you need visual proof of the lengths that squirrels will go to for a snack, go watch Mark Rober's Squirrel Proof Bird Feeder video on YouTube. Did you know that squirrels even used to be kept as pets? Like, a lot. Throughout the 17 and 1800s, squirrel ownership was super common, especially in the homes of wealthy urban families. There's a portrait by John Singleton Copley currently hung in the Metropolitan Museum of Art depicting a young, well-to-do boy holding his pet squirrel on a gold chain leash. Yeah, squirrels used to be fancy people pets. Benjamin Franklin even wrote a eulogy for the loss of his friend's pet squirrel, Mungo, in 1722, writing, Few squirrels were better accomplished than Mungo, for he had a good education, he had traveled far, and seen much of the world. Thou art fallen by the fangs of the wanton, cruel ranger, in reference to the dog that ate Mungo. Bob Ross also had a pet squirrel named Peabod, who actually joined him on his show The Joy of Painting on a number of occasions. Even now, squirrels are kept as pets by some. Of course, it's illegal in most states, but if you're in Delaware, Indiana, Alabama, or Louisiana, you can squirrel it up all you want. Squirrel Appreciation Day was founded in 2001 by Christy Hargrove, a wildlife rehabilitator in Asheville, North Carolina. According to thedailygardener.com, Hargrove created the holiday to bring attention to squirrels' diminished food sources in the winter months. So, if you're looking to be more involved in your celebration of Squirrel Appreciation Day, bring some squirrel food to your local park and become king or queen of the squirrels. And if you don't have squirrel food on hand, you could just slice up some apples, bring a bag of grapes, or just toss some mixed nuts around and you'll be in squirrel heaven in seconds. So have fun feeding the squirrels, and happy Squirrel Appreciation Day! Now, let's take a look back through the years to see what happened on this day in history. 
On this day, 67 years ago, the USS Nautilus submarine, designated SSN-571, was first launched from Groton, Connecticut. The USS Nautilus was the first nuclear-powered submarine and the first submarine to cross the North Pole under the Arctic Polar Ice Pack. In July of 1951, the United States Congress authorized the construction of a nuclear-powered submarine for the U.S. Navy. It was planned and personally supervised by Captain Hyman G. Rickover, known as the Father of the Nuclear Navy. Nautilus was powered by a submarine thermal reactor produced by the Westinghouse Electric Corporation. The Bettis Atomic Power Laboratory, operated by Westinghouse, was given the assignment to design the nuclear power reactor for the Nautilus on December 31, 1947. Nuclear power had the crucial advantage in submarine propulsion because it is a zero-emission process that consumes no air. This design is the basis for nearly all of the U.S. nuclear-powered submarines and surface combat ships, and was adapted by other countries for naval nuclear propulsion as well. The first actual prototype for the Nautilus was constructed and tested by the Argonne National Laboratory in Illinois in 1953. And then, on the morning of January 21st, 1954, the USS Nautilus was christened and launched into the Thames River. No, not the famous River Thames in London, oh no 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 no. The short river and tidal estuary out of Groton, Connecticut Thames River. That Thames River. As part of the launch ceremony, First Lady Mamie Eisenhower broke the traditional bottle of champagne across the bow of the submarine. If you'd like to see a little bit of this footage, go check out at Every Day's a Holiday Pod on Instagram. The Walt Disney Company even played a small role in the completion of the nuclear submarine, having designed the U.S. Navy submarine patch for the Nautilus. Warfare insignia like submarine patches, as well as many other military decorations, are commonplace in all branches of the U.S. military. In 1958, just four years after its first launch, the Nautilus became the first submarine to travel under the ice of the North Pole on orders from President Eisenhower to confirm intelligence that suggested the Soviet Union was developing submarine-launched ballistic missiles and potentially aiming them at the United States during the Cold War. The mission also sent a message to the Soviet Union that the U.S. could operate in its own backyard without detection. The USS Nautilus was decommissioned on March 3, 1980, after a 25-year career that included traveling over half a million miles. The submarine was designated a National Historic Landmark by the Secretary of the Interior two years later, and now the Nautilus serves as a Museum of Submarine History operated by the Naval History and Heritage Command, docked at the Naval Submarine Base in Groton, Connecticut, where it first launched. Now it's time to commemorate the births and deaths of famous or infamous individuals in our next segment, Life and Legacy. Today we celebrate the 44th birthday of American actor, comedian, and musician, Jerry Trainer. Gerald William Trainer was born on January 21, 1977, in San Diego, California, to retired Navy fighter pilot Bill Trainer and Madeline Trainer, a retired high school calculus teacher. Trainer has been credited with 54 acting roles on IMDb, from Lanky Kid in Donnie Darko 2001, to News Janitor in the 2020 TV series Apocalypse Goals. But I remember Jerry Trainer most from his roles as Crazy Steve in Drake and Josh, and Spencer Shea in iCarly between 2004 and 2012. 
In October of 2015, Trainer formed an alt-indie band called Nice Enough People, with guitarist-vocalist Mike O'Gorman, drummer Andrew Zuber, and guitarist Allison Scagliotti, who also used to star in Drake and Josh, as Mindy Crenshaw. Jerry Trainer plays bass for the band, and the group released their first EP, Hanover Hideaway, on June 22, 2016, and their second, Mental Outfit, on July 29, 2018. I had never heard of Nice Enough People, so I gave them a listen, and I was pleasantly surprised with their music. So go look up Nice Enough People if alt-indie is your jam. I think you'll enjoy them like I did. So yeah, happy birthday to Jerry Trainer. You brought me lots of laughs through my tween and teen years, and I was glad to discover Nice Enough People, so have a good 44th. Today, we also commemorate the 71st anniversary of the death of George Orwell. Eric Arthur Blair, better known by his pen name George Orwell, was an English novelist, essayist, journalist, and critic. Orwell's work is characterized by lucid prose, biting social criticism, opposition to totalitarianism, and outspoken support of democratic socialism. I'm sure we all remember reading Orwell's Animal Farm in high school English class, the farmyard fable reflecting the events leading up to the Russian Revolution and the Stalinist era of the Soviet Union. Orwell referred to himself as a democratic socialist. He, like many, was critical of Joseph Stalin and especially resented Stalin's stupid, bushy mustache, Orwell himself only being able to manage a thin top-lip fuzz, and he just could not stand that a Soviet dictator was so much more capable at growing facial hair than he was. No, of course not. Well, maybe. But Orwell's disdain towards Stalinism was more critically motivated by his experiences during the Spanish Civil War. He had traveled to Spain in December of 1936 out of concern about Spanish General Francisco Franco starting a military uprising in Spain. Upon arrival, Orwell met with British socialist politician John McNair, telling him, I've come to fight against fascism. George Orwell was the original Antifa. Orwell fought on the front lines for the Republican faction of the Spanish-American War, taking a sniper bullet to the neck that put him out of service, but he recovered enough to return to England with his wife, Eileen. According to Soviet files, Orwell and his wife Eileen had been spied on during their time in Barcelona in May of 1937. And then, during World War II, Orwell worked at BBC supervising radio broadcasts to India to counter Nazi propaganda that was designed to undermine links to the Allied forces. After his military and propagandist involvement through multiple wars, Orwell wrote and published his most famous works of literature, Animal Farm in 1945, and 1984 in 1949. I actually just began reading 1984 for the first time a few days ago, and in just the first few pages, I am utterly enthralled by the setup of the dystopian world Oceania. Oceania? Oceania? I, I don't know. George Orwell, rather, Eric Arthur Blair, died in his sleep on January 21st, 1950, of tuberculosis. He was buried at the Church of All Saints in Sutton Courtenay, England, his gravestone bearing the epitaph, Here lies Eric Arthur Blair, born June 25, 1903, died January 21, 1950, with no mention on the gravestone of his more famous pen name. Rest in peace, Eric Arthur Blair. I'm excited to continue reading 1984. Lastly, let's find out what listeners like you are celebrating today in our final segment, 
listener celebrations. This month and into the near future, Jason is celebrating having paid off $40,000 of debt in 2020 and is paying off another $35,000 in 2021. Holy crap. Congratulations on paying off so much last year, Jason. Just keep up the good work. You're over halfway there, and whatever you're doing is working. So keep it up. Good luck. Thank you for sharing your celebrations with us. And if you are celebrating anything like a birthday, an anniversary, or literally any special occasion, nothing is too big or too small, please shoot me a message at everydaysaholidaypod on Instagram. Thank you for joining me in today's celebrations. Special thanks to AJ Curtin for composing the music for Every Day's a Holiday. Please rate and review Every Day's a Holiday on Apple or Google Podcasts to let me know what you think of the show. And if you could pass the podcast along to your friends, that would be super appreciated as well. And tune in tomorrow morning to see what there is to celebrate on January 22nd. Enjoy today and catch you tomorrow. Tomorrow.